Welcome to the Middle East Report Special Edition. I'm John Riley. The Middle East, that's one part of the world that we need to pay attention to, especially the country of Israel. And of course, right now, there is a major war going on in Israel, and we want to bring you as much information about that as we can. And of course, each week, I try to help you make sense of what's happening in that region through a biblical lens. We cover a lot of different things, security threats, archaeological discoveries, biblical prophecy, and so much more. And the main purpose of the Middle East Report Special Edition is to encourage you to read, study, and apply God's Word in your life. And the best way to do that is to connect with the people, places, and geography of what we read in God's Word. We're going to do that today. We're going to go directly to the land of Israel and talk to a dear friend of mine, Shani Ferguson. Shani is the director of Maos Israel, an incredible organization that is making such a huge difference in Israel. We're going to find out more about that organization. Shani, thank you so much for joining us from Israel, from Jerusalem. Thank you so much for having me on again, John. Shani, for those who may not know what uh, Maos is all about, Maos Israel, can you just give us a really um, quick update on what you guys do there in the land? Well, when it is not wartime, as we like to say in the the normal days, um, well, the normal non-war days, uh, we have a minister here in the country, and we do a variety of things, including publishing books in Hebrew, uh, getting out uh, fresh worship music, uh, supporting a lot, and planting congregations across the country, helping the needy. There's just a, a wide spectrum of things that we're involved in. My parents founded the organization 46, 47 years ago. And so um, they uh, handed it over to my husband and I just a couple of years ago, and we're uh, leading the next generation of uh, ministry in Israel full of uh, Israelis. Shani, I wanted to ask you about obviously something that's in the news right now, and that is the release of these hostages. We're talking about the uh, Israeli hostages held by this demonic Hamas there in Gaza. Uh, tell us what you know about the release of those hostages and, you know, how people are feeling about that. Because, you know, when I look at it in the news, I'm like, OK, well, Israel is releasing a whole bunch of bad people to get just a, a few Israelis. So how does that look there in Israel? The hostage situation is very complex. Uh, one of the interesting things I think a lot of people don't know about the hostages is the variety of people that were taken hostage on October 7th. Uh, so you have, I believe, 97 of the people of the 240 have foreign passports. It means that they are citizens of other countries. And so uh, some of the reasons that some of them have been released uh, has been because they have citizenships and other countries are making deals to get them out. We had some uh, Thai and Nepali workers that were kidnapped. They have German citizens, Russian citizens, U.S. citizens. The other thing about the variety is the age like span um, from nine months old to, I believe, 85 uh, plus years old. Uh, they really didn't spare in terms of, oh, that's just a child or it's just a baby. Didn't spare that. Um, and also the uh, race, they kidnapped Bedouins, they kidnapped Arabs, they kidnapped Muslims with hijab wearing Muslims, Arabic speaking um, they kidnapped left wing, they kidnapped right wing. They did not ask these people what their political opinions were, what if they felt like, you know, uh, Palestine should be there instead of it. They didn't ask anybody anything. They just took, they either killed or they um, took hostage on October 7th. So right now is the very hard decision making time 
of trading security prisoners for these hostages. And and really one of the things that it's kind of like you just take a deep breath and and close your eyes and do it because you know, several years ago, Gilad Shalit was uh, taken hostage. He was a soldier at the time that he was taken hostage, and he spent five years in Gaza until Israel finally um, made the trade, and they traded 1,500 security prisoners for Gilad Shalit. And in one sense, all the Arabs in in the countries surrounding us know how much Israel values life, which is why it's so frustrating that they play and you know tell the world how much we're killing babies and and doing all this because they know how much Israel values life and that's why they they play this game and uh, one of those prisoners released during the Gilad Shalit um, trade was Sinwar who is now the head of Hamas and who was directly involved in the October 7th plans and attacks and so we know when when we do something like this, that there could be consequences down the line, but we can't leave our people in captivity. And that's, it's a, it's a tough decision. I think the hardest thing for Israelis is knowing that some of these security prisoners, I believe 150 were traded for 50 hostages, and some of them are being released into Israel. And one of the girls was a 14 year old girl who stabbed an Israeli woman and she lives across the street from her. And that's where she's going back to. And there's there's a, a child that's being um, you know, paraded around the the Arab media as like, look, they finally released this child that was in prison because he he was a terrorist and he tried to stab someone. And some of them succeeded. They're they're called um security prisoners with blood on their hands, meaning they murdered someone. And so these are these are really tough decisions to make. Um but the highest priority in Israel is life and and getting the hostages out of there is is just that soft spot that Israel has. It's our Achilles heel. It's we can't we can't leave our people over there. Shani, as you're sharing this, is this uh, I would assume how most Israelis feel or is there some is there some division there on on the whole idea of, uh, you know, the the exchange of you know, hostages for these security prisoners or these terrorists? You know, every Israeli that I hear mention the dynamic that I just mentioned will in the same breath say, but it's not it's not my family over there. And if it was, I wouldn't care. If it was my family over there, I would give up the whole prison to get them back. And so I think every Israeli understands that personal the love of family, the value of people, even if it's not theirs, even though they realize that we've now added threat. Um, there's a lot of sad stories. There's a, a girl that was brought over. She just quote unquote celebrated her fourth birthday while she was um, in Gaza uh, and she was released, but her parents were murdered. So she was released and she came back here to uh, a brother and a sister that survived the the atrocities of October 7th. There's also an Irish dad who's Irish-Israeli, he lived down in one of the uh, villages that were attacked. And he was told uh, a couple days, I think it was like October 9th, he was told that his daughter had been killed. They had identified the bodies. And he was quoted as saying, you know, when I heard the news, I said, I said, yes, because 
death was a blessing over her living in captivity in Gaza uh, under God knows what um, circumstances. And then a few weeks later, he receives the news that she was in fact kidnapped. So it was like just going from the mourning for the death to going into that unknown state of, I don't even know when I'm going to get her back. And she was freed. And it was just a beautiful, painful, like roller coaster of emotion of seeing them reunited um, and knowing what what he had gone through, you know, just thinking of of uh, her not with him. So it's you just can't you can't just look at that and be like, oh, you know, how can we release all these prisoners? It's just it's just a hard decision and you can't you can't look away. And you know, the 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 hospitals, all the doctors and the nurses that have been checking up on the on the hostages, as soon as they're released, they go get medical attention immediately. And they're just saying they're all crying while they're doing it because it's, you know, in one sense, tears of joy and relief. And another sense, just realizing what these people have gone through. They're saying they don't even really know how do you bring children back from that kind of experience psychologically, emotionally. So this is, there's just a lot of a lot of work ahead. A lot of work ahead. There is, and uh, it's a good reminder for all of us who are listening right now to please uh, continue to pray for you know the situation that's going on there, and especially these uh, precious Israeli families, the, these children, these these moms the, that are coming back, these grandparents that are coming back after being held by uh, this this awful demonic uh, force there in in Gaza, and it's it's so true. Israel values life. Hamas does not value life. We all know that. So, Shani, what is what's the temperature? You know, of the the country citizens there as the war continues. We're almost two months or more into this. Are, are they still unified? Uh, what's what does it look like there on the ground in Israel? That's a good question because Israel, you know, we're notoriously divided right before this happened um, on a political level. There was a lot of disagreements in terms of um, things that the the government was was pushing forward and um, the the vast uh, efforts are. We're at war. Let's not dig too deep uh, on the political scene because if we are busy fighting each other, then um, we could we could we could uh, become weak and not be able to fight uh, properly and take out Hamas. And that's our number one thing. So I think like most of the rage has been turned towards Hamas and of course Hezbollah and of course people are even aware that this is happening. But Yemen has. Um, a group of people that are um, hijacking ships that have partial uh, ownership by Israelis. So if they can, even if there's nobody on the crew that's Israeli or Jewish, and there's nobody, not the, not even going towards Israel, not no connection except for the potentially there's an Israeli that partially owns the business of whatever they they will hijack um, the the ship the ship and. Um, there is a, a level of fatigue because we are almost two months into it. The and it's not just a war; it's the uh, displacement of hundreds of thousands of Israelis on the northern border and the southern border. There's there's almost nowhere in Israel you can go where you're safe from anything. Even if you know some people fled to Eilat, which is our southernmost city at the on the Red Sea at the tip, uh, southern tip of Israel. And even there, that's the place that's been getting most of the unmanned aircrafts, uh, drones that are come, they, they fly them over from Yemen. I believe one was flown from Syria. 
and they just explode like in midair. And so there's almost nowhere to go where you can say, okay, for sure, this is a safe place in Israel. It's such a small country that the fact that we have um, a threat from the north and the south and, uh, you know, and Gaza and even the Jordan border, the Jordan border is um, and you guys will have to look at, at a map because some of you are like, I don't even know where this border is. The Jordanian border, you know, we're at peace with Jordan. It's kind of a, a chilled peace. It's not like they love us, but um, they do uh, cooperate with us. Uh, but we have a, a porous border that uh, uh, weapons are smuggled through. And so that's also a border that we have to protect. Let's say fatigue is, is uh, starting to set in, but it's mostly because of the unknown. It's not that anybody at this point is saying stop because we realize if we stop, we're only buying time until the next attack like this happens. Uh, we definitely need to topple Hamas, but at the same time, there's families who are have been living in a hotel room with their kids for a month. And I don't know how many of the listeners have ever gone on a vacation and spent two or three days in a small room. And, you know, at least you have things to do and you're going out or whatever, but just imagine having nowhere to go, not having a house to return to, not knowing when you're going to get out of that hotel and not having anything to do. And so that actually leads into some of the activities that Maoz has been involved in because we realized that morale is a huge factor in a war. And, you know, morale is something that soldiers can either be pumped and just go in and do their job, or they can be so discouraged that they actually become more, more of a target. And it's the same thing when it comes to the population. If the population, which, you know, there's so many that have been running around and bringing hot meals to the soldiers and, you know, getting supplies. We've been doing a lot of that, just getting supplies to soldiers, basic stuff. And if I can just kind of like bunny trail a bit here, because we have had the question, why are you guys getting soldiers supplies? Why are you doing that? Doesn't the military supply this? And here's the answer, because, you know, we had some 360,000 reserves called up. And that means that they're people that had served their civilians. They served in the, the mandatory military and now they're civilians and they have businesses and families. So they're not active soldiers. So the minute they get called up, they don't just keep, you know, military gear for wartime in their closet. They're suddenly called up and they don't have shoes. They're wearing army uniforms and tennis shoes. And the army is us usually has some sort of rotation, right? Like you go in the field and you'll take this gear. And then when you come back, you give it to the next guy. But they, because we're spread out so far, we're all, all over the Northern border, all over the Southern border, Jordanian border, Syrian border. And of course in Gaza, um, they didn't have enough equipment. And so some people were just functioning without their proper equipment. And A, it's not safe. And B, uh, one of the things that we we had, the, the most requested thing was jackets, fleece jackets, because it got suddenly cold, right? When the war started in the desert, anybody that's lived anywhere near the desert, you know, at nighttime, it gets really cold. It can be really hot during the day and then very, very cold. And so these people were called up immediately from their house, had to uh, go straight to the field and they didn't have time or ability to go purchase, like supplies just disappeared. So we ran around uh, to different stores and purchased uh, shoe boots for them and gloves and helmets and um, uh, jackets and like just some really basic stuff. And of course, hot meals. And uh, that 
that was that was the the civilians kicking in where the army wasn't able to because the army's so big. So the army would order like you know, huge supplies from a huge supplier, but they're not going to go from store to store and see if there's 50 here, 200 there, 1000 there. And that's what we were able to do as a flexible organization. Yeah. And that's just one of the ways that you all are supporting with everything that's going on there. Of course, you are ministering to the families. You mentioned a lot of families that are are displaced right now. So tell us what uh, you guys are doing for you know, the families that that have been displaced and are going through a lot right now. Right. So one of the things that's been interesting is as a Messianic Jewish organization, a lot of time there's been a very strong hesitation, uh, if not an aversion, by any kind of official entity to work with Messianic Jews. Because there's all these kind of rumors of like, you know, we're a cult and, you know, we're like, it was just really funny because I was like, if you understand how a cult is structured, there's no way you would ever look at Messianic Jews and all their congregations and all their opinions and think that they're a cult. But in any case, a lot of it has to do with not knowing what it is we believe, not understanding what the difference is between a Messianic Jew and a, and a Christian and why that's relevant in Israel. In any case, you know, we, we had some uh, ability to connect with schools and groups of people that have been displaced, and they have kids basically with no school supplies, right? They either had to evacuate or their village was burned down. And so they're sitting, like I said, in these hotels, and we've been able to make some really great connections in different cities, including uh, the city of Ranana, which is just north of Tel Aviv. And through relationships, we've uh, now we're now working officially with um with the city of Ranana to build a school. And this is like one of the coolest things because there's this parking lot across from one of the hotels where there's a thousand people, over a thousand people um, staying. And these people aren't covered by the, by the country's budget for evacuation. And here's why. If you're between zero and seven kilometers from the Gaza border, then the country will cover your expenses to move elsewhere because you're under threat. But if your village is like 7.2 kilometers from the border, then you're not covered. Like they had to have this cutoff. And so you have all these areas that are very much at risk, are constantly getting rocket barrages. You can't function there. And and so the people left on their own accord, but they're not covered and they can't afford to just put themselves up in a hotel. And so the, the city of Ranana has been covering this cost because the mayor says, you know, I can't turn these people away and and they're just coming and so we want to we the, the country asked them to build a school but they didn't give them a budget for it and so they came and told us about this and we said hey we would love to be involved in this because they're like we're going to build a school and we're going to do it in a few weeks and i was like this is great everyone in the states is like you know we want to do something and we're like we can have a school in israel built before christmas and we're like you can have your christmas presents under your tree and we can have a school built in israel all before the holidays. And so um, that's what we're working on right now. And it's going, and of course, one of the important, two of the important things that the parents said that they wanted in order to be willing to send their kids to this was A, that it would be a close walk from the hotel. And the reason this is the case is because in the cities, the towns where they live, you have 10 to 15 seconds to get to a bomb shelter when a siren goes off. Now, in Ranana, you have 90 seconds. Trust me, it's a long time when you're used to it. But because these parents are used to the 10, 15 seconds, they don't, they can't like mentally adapt to like, hey, guys, you got a whole minute and a half to find a bomb shelter. So they said, we will only send our kids to a school if it's right outside the hotel. And so they took this parking lot and we've got pictures of it on our on our website. And um, 
it, they're basically, we're going to turn this into a school and we will have a bomb shelter right next to uh, the school. And so everybody can run out. Now the bomb shelters are more expensive. There's something like $50,000 per bomb shelter. And of course, because they're a city, they can't just put one. So they're raising money to put 15 bomb shelters across the city. They're public bomb shelters um, for anyone who's walking around uh, the city and isn't in their house when a siren goes off. But the school also has to be close. And so that that's one of the things we're focused on. The other thing that we said um, would be really good because there is a, a crisis here of farming. And this was strategic on Hamas's part because when they came over, they attacked areas that were agricultural. And they took the, t they scared off the Thai workers, they kidnapped some Thai workers, they killed others, and they went to uh, chicken coops and they, you know, cut the, the fences so that, you know, we wouldn't be able to have eggs and, and, um, and chicken and all that. And so uh, what has happened as a result is this crisis of agriculture. We don't have people to harvest. It's, it actually brings a whole new meaning to, you know, the, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. This is that. And so a lot of Israelis, including us and our, our team, we went down and volunteered our time to harvest. There's, there was a huge um, harvest, uh, tomato harvest and cucumbers, bell peppers. Uh, but the issue is greater because we still have a lack, a huge lack of thousands and thousands of foreign workers who at the time were harvesting. And so we said, hey, you've got all these young people. They're sitting around with nothing to do let's take them to the harvest. Now we can't take them down south. Like we went to, to harvest near the Gaza border. And of course you can hear the explosions in Gaza while we're picking tomatoes. These are closer to um, the, the cities near, near Tel Aviv. And there's, you know, an enormous amount of produce that Israel creates. And one of the reasons it's important for Israel to be able to do that is because if countries turn against us and they decide they're also not going to sell us food, we need to be able to have our own food. And if our farmers don't have the manpower to plant, then it doesn't matter how much money we have, we won't have food. And so uh, we said, hey, let's get the young people that after school and we will cover, you know, the buses and the insurance and, and everything to make sure that they're safe. And um, let's send them out and they can help with the harvest. So the, the city said, great, this is, this is something we really want to support. So those are some of the activities that we've been doing. The other uh, thing is the, the, it's called the Kitat Konenut, which is, I think the English translation would be like a, a volunteer civilian security team. And they're basically people that live in, in a certain village or a town and they will get a not notification if there's ever any kind of threat and they do it all voluntarily. And sometimes they'll stand at the entrance, like at our, um, our village near Jerusalem, when, uh, the war first broke out, there was a checkpoint and you had to cross this checkpoint. Doesn't matter who you were to get into the village because they, they didn't know at the time how widespread, um, the terrorist activity was. We knew that the, the thousands of uh, Hamas terrorists that came into Israel on the 7th of October. Some of them were still hiding out in Israel. So we didn't know where they would pop up. But now there's all these, basically all the cities need to make sure that they have this and all the towns have these volunteer security teams. And again, the security teams are self-funded. The city has to fund them or they have to locally be funded. And so uh, some of the most basic things in terms of making sure they have the proper gloves, just stuff that you wouldn't have on hand 
but you would if you're giving yourself um, over to protect the people in in your city. So they'll they'll stand outside of schools. They'll stand um, on entrances to their to their villages, and um, yeah. So that's that's some of the stuff that we've uh, that we've been involved in. That's Shani Ferguson, the director of Maos Israel. And Shani, those are some amazing projects that you have going on there in Israel to help all those affected with that ongoing war in the land of Israel. And I just want to encourage everyone: you can donate to Maos Israel securely safely and with confidence. This is a ministry that you can trust. They definitely have high standards when it comes to financial accountability. If you want to contribute to any of those projects, you can visit IsraelNeedsMe.com. That's IsraelNeedsMe.com. IsraelNeedsMe.com. Please check out that website. There's a lot of information on how you can get involved to help those in the ongoing war there in the land of Israel. And again, this is a solid ministry, a solid organization. I have met Shani and Kobe Ferguson personally. I know their ministry. You can donate to them securely and with trust. So check out that website, IsraelNeedsMe.com. That's IsraelNeedsMe.com. Shani, thank you for joining us today on the Middle East Report Special Edition. Always a pleasure. As we wrap up this week's Middle East Report Special Edition, we know that the war in Israel is going to continue for several more months. It's important for us to continue to pray about that situation there in Israel. But it's also important that we listen carefully to what is coming out of President Joe Biden's mouth. And I do appreciate what appears to be a commitment from the president that he's made to Israel's self-defense and, you know, sending our military troops to that region. But he continues to say one thing but he is wanting to do the opposite, and that should surprise nobody. Let me share with you just a few examples. The president commented to reporters a few days ago about the Hamas hostage release. During that exchange, a reporter asked Biden his thoughts on calls to condition U.S. aid to Israel as a way to halt Israel's invasion of Gaza. Here's what the president said, quote, I think that's a worthwhile thought, but I don't think if I started off with that, we would have gotten where we are today, unquote. Once again, Biden says one thing about supporting Israel, and then he says another thing when it really comes down to supporting Israel and how we need to put conditions on Israel. You know, Biden is being pressured by the woke Democratic Party to condition any aid to Israel, and in the coming days and weeks, look for more pressure from the White House on Israel to stop the war. Now, here is the second story. President Biden issued an apology to several prominent Muslim American leaders after openly questioning the accuracy of the death toll figures from Gaza. The president said, quote, I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people have been killed. He said, I'm sorry. I'm disappointed in myself. The Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health says more than 14,000 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed. But none of that has been verified. And what Biden is saying here is that he believes the brutal and murderous Hamas regime, since they are the ones sending out the death toll numbers, but again, none of the numbers have been verified. It's another example of this president playing politics to one part of our society. Let's pray for our country, pray for everything going on there in Israel. And don't forget, you can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcast. We're on all the major podcast platforms out there. And... You can also go to AFR.net, click on the podcast tab, and look for the Middle East Report. 
Thank you for listening to the Middle East Report Special Edition. I'm John Riley. Have a great weekend.